So that's what I did. I went through my closet, looked at clothing that would fit this thing, and um, and then held it tenuously with safety pins and silkscreen, gold and silver, because that's how that's what the fight is ultimately about. Money. It was kind of like a homage to those people. If I had the names, I probably would have made a little initial on each square, you know. But that's what that piece was about. And why was it so big? Well, I wanted to make a huge statement, you know. How big can I go, you know? Welcome to Articulated. I'm Jennifer Snyder. I work as the oral history archivist at the Archives of American Art. And I'm Ben Gillespie the Arlene and Robert Kogod Secretarial Scholar for Oral History. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Weaving is all about crossings, and Consuelo Jimenez Underwood's work braids the natural, the man-made, and the historic together through human experience. Textiles embody and extend tradition, and in Underwood's hands, textiles are also sites of recognition and reconciliation. In this episode, we will trace Underwood's roots and the legacies she has cultivated during her prolific career. Consuelo Jimenez Underwood was born in Sacramento, California in 1949 to a Chicana mother and a Weechal father. Throughout her childhood, her family moved often as agricultural workers who followed crop cycles between California and Mexico. Underwood attended San Diego State University, where she learned the current trends in painting and developed a deeper connection to the work of her ancestors, especially through weaving classes with Joan Austin. She spoke about her turn to textiles in her 2011 oral history with Mija Riedel. Oh my gosh. So there I was, in, in, uh, enrolled in painting, and I had taken, I was congruently sneaking in a weaving class, and I found myself ditching the painting classes to work, to go to the cafeteria and work on my frame loom. Because Joan taught me the how to weave on the frame loom like my father had done. And so I found that so much more intriguing than, and I remember my mandate was, well, in drawing, they say if you want to be a good drawer, you have to do a drawing a day. So because whether you want to be a good weaver, do a weaving a day. Drawing was important only because it was one of the vocabularies that I needed to know of the ancestors. Mm-hmm. Spinning, dyeing, weaving, surface design. Mm-hmm. I needed to know the basic vocabulary. If I was going to take on the whole art community with textiles, I better know it all. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, and it's, and it's just really cool that the gods set it up that Joan knew it all. Mm-hmm. She grew up uh, a fisherman, Portuguese uh, man, fisherman off of San Pedro. Mm-hmm. And she would go off in the four o'clock in the morning, so she understood work, to go do knots and help her dad fish. Yeah. So she knew handwork, mm-hmm. and she understood it. Mm-hmm. And but she couldn't understand metallics mm-hmm. in my work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I remember getting to San Diego, and we had to do Navajo rugs, and I and I'm like, I'm not gonna weave with wool. This I'm never gonna. If I was in Alaska, okay, mm-hmm. I'm gonna do cotton and linen. This is a desert here, folks. The United States 
saw a surge of textile art in the 1960s and 70s, as artists including Dorothy Liebes and Sheila Hicks brought weaving to the forefront of art. Works on fiber connected with renewed feminism during the period, as weaving was often referred to as women's work, and textiles also drew upon rich traditions in Native American art. Resistance to sexism, colonialism, and easy borders compelled Underwood's work from the outset. Underwood spoke about her immersion in art history at school and how she approached her own niche in the art world. Complain about the presentation wasn't answered. Mm-hmm. It was just about making the stuff. But how do you market it? How do you put it out there? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. Well, I kind of know how I did it, but I knew then because I was also reading autobiographies. Mm. Wanted to know the autobiographies of artists. Okay. And that's how I got to know really well Van Gogh because I really loved his letters. Yes. And so with uh, the one that I remember, I remember reading Rollo May, yes. The Courage to, to create. create. I remember that book. Okay. And I remember Courage, Coraje, Controlled Anger. Yep, that's certainly what I got. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that was the one that showed me the, the soul of art making mm. you know that's what I learned from that really yes you know he really spoke about that inner mm-hmm. that inner thing mm-hmm. that's necessary to create art mm-hmm. you know and right. so it resonated you know I really it was almost a spiritual book but it wasn't and goes I just remember exaggerate the essential make a the the obvious I remember that was just, I could never, I never let go of that quote from Van Gogh. Exaggerate the essential, make vague the obvious. And those were like my mantras, you know. Um, Kandinsky, few can see beyond the veil of reality. And I'm thinking, those are my veils. Yes, you know, put a veil over my work. But it'll make it not so pretty. Doesn't matter, it's the statement. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to get through my barbed wire and fence filter to understand what's underneath. Why it's the way it is. Why it's woven. Why it's beautiful. These are the writings that I would I would go read at during uh, San Diego State, mm-hmm. which is really formidable, formidable years of art making. Mm-hmm. It really ingrained in me the walk of the artist, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the studio. Mm-hmm the studio walk of the artist, mm-hmm. as opposed to the promotional exhibition, which I didn't learn that at San Diego. In fact, I you know, wasn't even brought up. I mean, I was just really focusing on how do I make a cool weaving that isn't round, has no hoops, and says something. Mm-hmm. You know, how, and pay homage to the, to the elders, because I always felt the elders the anonymous women, indigenous women that died, mm-hmm. I always would make prayers to them when I would begin the studio work, paying honor to their spirit, mm-hmm. because their spirit was was still there, mm-hmm. but they died horrific deaths, and I knew they wove better than I did. Now, who were you thinking about in particular here that wove so well but had horrific deaths? Um, I bury my heart at Windy Knee. Okay. My grandmother, who had a very bad death, her mother, who I never met, I never met my grandmother either. Um, that was a specific. And she was a weaver. 
Yeah, my we told grandmother. Okay. She could weave. She didn't do much of it, but her mother, her my great grandmother, my yeah, her great grandmother was the weaver, we chore, embroiderer, mm -hmm. and who knows how, what happened to them because Mexico was doing a lot of uh, extermination too. Mm -hmm. And I know here in the plains, the Gatling gun was tried out on the Native Americans, you know, and then they used it in the Civil War. They banned it in the Civil War, but they used it on the natives. So. They were just gunned down villages. So those are the anonymous I was thinking about. Underwood's work often uses unexpected material, from plastic to barbed wire, mirroring her engagement with geography and history. Long based in Silicon Valley's Cupertino, Underwood shed light on her technical innovations and inspirations to Mija Ridal. Materials have to fit because I already gave up wool. So what's here? Oh, computers, wires, and plastics. That's how I got into the plastics and wire. Because there were the, what Silicon Valley was all about. And so then how do I put that? Well, I just figured out ways. The barbed wire was the coolest. Yeah, so that's when the barbed wire first yeah, happened. Okay. Yeah, because of the material. Okay, so what are you talking about? Well, I really would like to talk about the veed hen how the veed hen is really not that real beautiful one, but she's everything. And that's when all these dark portraits of veed hens came out. And at the same time, I was exploring uh, plastics and mixed media in the loom. And then I went, the other thing you want to talk about is borders. Oh, the barbed wire. That's the ultimate bar border material. So how are you going to use that? Oh, it's impossible to weave. And in the veed hen de la frontera, the big giant one that I made, that was the first time that I had used barbed wire. Okay. And if you notice, I put five of them in there. Yeah. And then like three at the top. But the first one is kind of like this, because I struggled to put, you know, ah, this is horrible. How am I going to get my idea that I want them in every 10 inches? I want a barbed wire. It's got to be in there. Ding, get a tube. Weave the tube. Put the barbed wire in the tube, pull out the tube, and it's in sp It's already in place. One, two, three, four, and the top of it's wow! I did even three at a time at the top. It was such a cool process. Yeah. And that was like, ding! You know, that was a big, big, that was San Jose pushing me. Get excited here because these weavings are getting me to sleep. Put some content in there. And so that's why, that's why I owe San Jose so much. But at the same time, it was such an open, they didn't, they didn't go and go after me. They put up with me. They at were this, intrigued. At this point, didn't you also embrace fringe? Direct? Yes, yeah. and that was to confront that mindset that mm -hmm. weaving is, you know the jiu-jitsu? Mm -hmm. When they come at you, you grab their hand and just keep pulling mm -hmm. so that they fall. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, you don't like weavings? Well, how about fringe? Because I knew I hated fringe. Right. Well, then here's fringe, and that was the white one. Right. Or right. I just let the fringe, and they love the fringe. Yeah. They well, really. I'm just thinking about how metaphorically loaded your work is. The whole idea of embracing fringe. Yes. It's so interesting that that came so early. Yep. Yeah. From denying it all through San Diego. Right. There was no fringe. Mm -hmm. But I saw that this was a really serious case. Yeah. I'm not going to hide who I am. I'm going to throw it in their face. It's weaving. Mm -hmm. It's fibers. It's threads. And I love the idea, too, that fringe is synonymous and, and antithetical. Well, not antithetical, but synonymous. And also, it both is and is not the border. 
in, in the work, and that just ties right The edges, yeah, the exactly. edges. And, and for me, uh, I, I put that border on me just so I could pass mm -hmm. into the San Diego, right? Just so I could make that transition from textile to art mm -hmm. or get rid of the border right. that defines craft. Mm -hmm. Make it like a painting. Mm -hmm. You know, stop wearing the rebozo, right. you know? Underwood's works often deal with the U.S.-Mexico border and the complex human and ecological realities along it. We spoke with Mary Savig, Herman Lloyd Curator of Craft at the Renwick Gallery of the Smithsonian American Art Museum, about an early Underwood in their collection. It's uh, Virgin de los Caminos, Virgin of the Roads. And this is one of her earlier works with the, the border fence motif in it or the barbed wire motif. And as the story goes that she's told, this started out as a baby blanket for her daughter. And then she started thinking about the little girls in the border. And so she decided to make this for all of the little girls in the border. And at the center of the quilt, she embroidered a picture of the Virgin of Guadalupe. And this is a figure that travelers pray to as they cross. So then she also has the barbed wire that's about the border fence. And there's also um, the word caution is very faintly embroidered. And the running family motif are faintly embroidered throughout the background. If you look at it online, you can't really see, but... You know, textiles are always better to experience in person because they do not translate very well to the digital world. And it just has all of these different layers and juxtapositions of materials that tell a full story of emotions, of memories, in a way that's not really black and white, but it is really complex. And it I think is this full expression of a lot, a lot of her inherited memories and then also her own experience. While Virgin de los Caminos of 1994 is approximately five feet tall by three feet wide, Underwood also pushed herself to make larger works to grapple with larger topics. She spoke about two such works in her oral history. Yeah. It's the first time that I noticed the, uh, that caution image. There may be another one, but um, I think that was the first series because mm -hmm. by that it was 1990, early 90s, and the thing came up around 87. Was okay. when I noticed a caution sign. Okay. And uh, that was really horrific, horrific to yeah. see that sign. Yeah. And uh, so, oh my God, they're thinking of us as animals, you know, caution, deer crossing, you know, and so uh, that affected me, mm -hmm. and that's when I first started uh, using it. Mm -hmm. Before we leave the um, the caution image altogether, I want to talk about two, the Run Jane Run and See Jane Run from 2004 and 2005, because those, if I'm not incorrect, are the last time we see the caution image so prominently. But they're huge. Those pieces are yeah. High. One that the the run the run Jane the See Jane Run is right. 10 by 17 feet. Right. 
it's huge. Yeah. And it's just a, like the rebozo, tiny little squares. It came from the rebozo, but no, it, that one was made first for an installation in Oakland. Okay. And then, um, and then the rebozo became really small. The little squares became tiny to use the rebozo. Mm -hmm. And then I went, you know what? I can. It's like having the yin and yang. Cotuelo never knows what to order, coffee or Coke. He said, when I used to drink Coke, I was like, uh, what do you want? Uh, both. <laughs> Hot or cold. I don't know, but they're both caffeine, you know, right. and they're both dark and they both taste good. One burns and one's hot. Okay. Uh, so there I was. Yeah. Now I older I now I blended it. Iced coffee. Okay. <laughs> but back then it was like, we don't want large or small. Um, so with a CJ run with the giant squares, it's huge. The idea of um, the decimated family, because I had made, there was like a hundred and something people that had been killed over the, and they said, and I read, you know, when somebody gets run over at 70 miles an hour, the only thing that's left are fragments of clothing, which is why pieces of cloth. Mm -hmm. Nothing else is recognizable. Mm -hmm. Shoes, mm -hmm. pieces of paper, and usually these people don't carry anything of ID because they don't want to get caught. Wow. Just pieces of clothing? Wow. Oh my gosh. What kind of clothing would they wear? Well, they usually wear, you know, I'm reading the article, dark clothing that isn't easily recognizable, you know, kind of blended. And I go, oh, I know that kind. So that's what I did. I went through my closet, looked at clothing that would fit this thing, mm -hmm. and, um, and then held it tenuously with safety pins mm -hmm. and silkscreen gold and silver because that's how, that's what the fight is ultimately about, money. It was kind of like a homage to those people. If I had the names, I probably would have made a little initial on each square, you know. But that's what that piece was about. And why was it so big? Well, I wanted to make a huge statement, you know. How big can I go, you know. I made the statement with Reboso with tiny. That's about as small as I go. How big can I go? The whole idea of it being a quilt as well is yeah. such a powerful yeah. textile again. Yeah, totally fabric and put together with no stitching. Run Jane Run currently hangs in the Renwick Gallery of the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and we asked Mary Savig, curator of craft, to tell us about the significance of this work and how it inhabits the gallery space. It is a touchstone for a lot of our visitors to understand various complexities of the U.S.-Mexico border through her experience. And just standing in front of it, this work has a really powerful presence. It's a very large-scale work. It's about 10 feet tall, so it is quite monumental. And it is bright, caution yellow. So I think the first things you notice about it are the scale and the color. And then you notice these details that I think start to become really um, powerful in it. First, there are a lot of exposed threads. They're warps. So Consuelo here is making a, a tapestry weaving. So she made this on a loom, and typically the warps are the long parts, and the wefts are the horizontal parts that go through the warps. And in a lot of tapestries, by the time it's done, you never see the warps. They're completely covered by the wefts. And here at the top of the work, she's exposed a lot of the warps, more than a foot of them. And it gives it this really raw, exposed feeling. And I think that energy, that expression, 
is what sets up the entire narrative. Because then you also see the caution sign. And she wrote with her weaving the words caution. And then below that, you see a family running. And this is from the running family sign that she first saw along the 405 freeway by San Diego. And in her oral history interview, she's, she talks about seeing that for the first time when she was on the highway and how distraught she was at that because here's this family that represents children and parents trying to cross the border. And the only thing that's up to protect them from speeding cars is this sign. So I think that becomes this symbol for her for a lot of different issues with the border, the caution signs, the barbed wire, something else that she puts in a lot of her works and caution tape. I think a lot of these are symbols for a broken system, a system that is really, um, these works are really symptoms of a broken system that isn't protecting people. (laughs) It's doing the bare minimum. It's responding to people, but it's not really acknowledging the humanity of the people and how they're trying to seek safety. So all of it, all it is, is are these minor steps that don't, they're really just symptoms of a system that's failing. So she's trying to call that out. And then she's also trying to replace, I think, the humanity or instill the humanity of the migrants, especially this little girl. That's, it's probably Jane and run, Jane run. So you see the family. And then when you look deeper, you see that there are even more um, intricate textures. You can see that she's been weaving with barbed wire. And that was a technique that she had to develop because you can imagine trying to weave with barbed wire on a moment. It's probably painful and very difficult. So she devised a technique where she wraps it first and then she puts it through. And then there's also caution tape. So you see this juxtaposition of really soft cottons and linens with these really harsh textures. And I think that play itself is really about it's really laden with a lot of her own emotions. So there's a softness to it. There's this idea that there is still possibility for mending. When I think of her work, especially with the barbed wire, I think a lot of Gloria Anzaldúa's description of the borderlands, especially the fence, is this 1,950-mile-long open wound. And I think Consuelo's work is really a way forward to help mend that and help to think through the borderlands and offer a hopeful perspective and one that also restores the humanity of people who are in the borderlands. While barbed wire is often cutting and dangerous, Underwood has also found nuance in its manufacture and purpose. She recounted a lesson from her experience teaching at Penland School of Crafts in North Carolina. Oh my gosh, I've been struggling with California barbed wire since the early 90s, learning how to weave it right and how to stretch it and all that and I didn't realize but a California barbed wire is like almost pencil diameter mm-hmm. the two and then you twine them together mm-hmm. I go to Penland and the barbed wire they give me it's like the core the lead part is that that's how wide the diameter is and they're twisted together Ah, so much narrower finer yeah. lighter easier I'm like wow where did this come from 
this is very different from the California barbed wire. And then some young lady said, well, Consuelo, we have to take care of our horses. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> of course, we don't want to hurt the horses over here. Right. In California, who cares? It's for people, you know. <laughs> that was so funny to me. But ever since then, I've been ordering just the, the thin. The thin gauge. <laughs> That's what's out there. The thin gauge, because it's just like, oh my gosh, my fingers were so... They were like, I was afraid to pick up things because they break things, you know, because I was so used to working with the barbed wire. Mary Savig unpacked this episode in greater detail for us. For her, that was really this reflection point. And it's something that I, of course, now reflect on quite a bit for how we, we do have this means to set up ways to keep people safe. And yet at our own border where there are human beings, we're still using these really painful fencing materials. But, you know, for animals, we don't do it the same way. So the question is why? And so she, she has since begun using some of the finer gauge barbed wire in her work because it's easier to weave with. And then I also think it's a great opportunity to think about that difference through her work too. While lines and wires can create borders, Underwood is more interested in what goes or grows across borders. She described the significance of the natural world in her work and the links she feels with her native heritage to Misha Riddell. But I felt I had enough, and I already dreamed my grandmother a couple of times. And so then my, my ritual link, I never met her. But I felt that I had dreamt her. So I felt that through the dream world, I could connect. And then here I was in Yaki land with the honey going into, uh, into this ritual thing. And I'm going, wow, it really is indigenous, you know, and I can see. And they would, they, I could see the similarities, you know, mm-hmm. of uh, indigenous way of being, which is pretty uh, similar in many basic levels I felt that if I explore this not explore it but live it Mm -hmm. that it would be enough to keep me going give me food for to come back over here and say yes folks we're not Spanish we're not English Mm -hmm. you know we are indigenous it is really real Mm -hmm. you know and that seems to tie in very deeply to your environmental sensibility because with that deep immersion in Yaki experience seems to also have come at the same time that the presence of the flowers in your work over and over again, those four state flowers, either abstract or not, or in installations, that those have become increasingly significant. Because in in Yaki land, um, the men wear flowers on their embroidered wristbands and uh, wrist cloths Mm -hmm. and in kerchiefs, Mm -hmm. and they keep saying, you know, a a real man can wear flowers. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing feminine about that. And it's like they confront their femininity and they accept it. And so 
that was so uh, cool and important to me. And to have be able to say, yes, cantoras, tell the elders they did wrong. You know, to have the woman be uh, the overriding law, mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. Yeah, you I know? think we haven't discussed that yet on, on the cards. So just in quick summary, that that's a way that, that decisions are, well, I'll let you explain the way the decisions are come to in that Yaki culture and the women have the final say. Right. Um, in the Yaki culture, there's many societies, men and women societies, that are church spirit related. And so one of the one of the societies of the women is the cantoras, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like the cantors in the mm -hmm. Hebrew, but mm -hmm. the cantors in Hebrew are men. Mm -hmm. In Yaki land, it's women. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's eight pueblos. Each pueblo has a council of elders. Mm -hmm. The elders are elected, and uh, they listen to problems. And so they, if you have a problem, you go to the council, and they meet once a week. And so you tell them what your problem is, and the council of elders listen, and everybody gets to have their say. Mm -hmm. When everybody finishes talking, and it can take an hour or three days, then the elders decide what the solution is. Then the cantoras hear the solution, hear the problems, and they, if they agree with the council, the cantoras will say, okay, go with it. If they don't agree, they say no. The cantoras say, no, it doesn't sound right, go back and talk again then they have to go back and talk again. Mm -hmm. So the cantora, the woman, has the ultimate say in what is being decided in the pueblos. So interesting. It's totally interesting. Mm -hmm. And there's not a chief. There's a gobernador, but he has to listen to the, uh, to the other council members, mm -hmm. and they, in turn, have to listen to the cantoras. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's kind of like, you know, there is no president, there is no chief. Mm -hmm. It's just elders. Mm -hmm. And the elders are ruled by the cantoras. You know, and if you look at the historical uh, references to the Iroquois, they're pretty much similar. Interesting. You know, they have that same women mm -hmm. are the ones that uh, that dictate. You know, or the the, final, the word. final word. Interesting. And so flowers and women and children, you know, they all make sense. You know, and and uh, and uh, with a, going back to Yakiland. It just became more overwhelming how important flowers were symbolic of a way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, you know, we have flowers in special places here, too. We even have a state flower. Take the California poppy. You cross the border into Arizona, it's no longer the California poppy. It's the Sonora poppy. Fancy that. <laughs> the same flower, but two different names. Because yeah. they'll say, it's not a California poppy, that's a Sonora poppy. But you cross the border, all of a sudden that same flower. So who's zooming who? You know, who's labeling what? We're, this isn't the Garden of Eden where we, do, we, we all get to be Adam and, and name things. I mean, sorry, that was over there in Northern Africa. But it ain't here in the Americas. You know, we don't get caught up in names, you know, in, in possession. Mm -hmm. The land doesn't belong to the person. It belongs to the people, the nation. And I th it's an interesting time, I think, to talk at least about that, uh, the uh, installation, the 2010 installation at the Triton Museum, the Undocumented Border Flowers. Yeah. Because that's such a beautiful synthesis of your the border influencing your work for so many years, the arrival of the flowers as, as such a strong environmental statement, and the whole concept of, of different kinds of borders. Or yeah. Not, or shifting yes. borders or non-existent borders. Right. The, how borders can decimate the, the natural environment. Right. 
and how you know how is a flower different from an indigenous person of the land and you, something you said that i thought was very much to the point is how do flowers pollinate across that border that wall that's being built how do you pollinate over a 12-foot wall it just breeds nothing but desert for miles in either direction yeah. Yeah. It does. And so what is happening is they're creating a desert in the middle of the Americas. Mm -hmm. A hundred years, it's going to be a wasteland there. Nothing is going to grow. Mm -hmm. In 200 years, it's going to be a Sahara Desert, you know. And it used to be such a rich, ecological place. In her 2020 oral history with Matthew Sims, the Gerald and Benty Buck West Coast collector at the archives, Underwood outlined a new project to celebrate American flora. I'm doing this project called, I've always wanted to do it, honoring the state documented wildflowers. Hmm. So on men's handkerchiefs, I'm making portraits with crayon onto these handkerchiefs to be connected with safety pins and there'll be all the state flowers and on the bottom is all their their name their scientific names you know how adam went around and he documented and identified and and did everything to those plants well i'm doing that to those flowers but i'm showing their beauty and i was like 50 of them because i started like four right I don't think we have a wall big enough to photograph all 50. Oh, no! So three days ago, I brought it down. We'll just do the state border flowers of the north and the border flowers of Canada. And that's 17. And on number, we'll just highlight California. Yeah. The yeah. kick will be that the four border states and California will have uh, embroidered all across the image the running family with the mom in front in a very iridescent, see-through, beautiful, reflective uh, thread. Which carries through to your... To yes, work. totally. And then I'm going, oh, it's only 17? I can actually uh, stitch like borders, you know, like at the bottom of Navajo blankets is always a border. I can stitch those borders on the bottom of the, it's going to be, oh my God. So I'm so excited because that's something I can do while I'm sitting down. And Mary Savig told us about a new project that Underwood has embarked upon that continues her line of questioning around borders, names, and movement. So she has this project that is extending from the work with the flowers where she was Learning a little bit about bird migration and how a lot of the birds, when they get to the super tall areas of the U.S.-Mexico border fence, how the birds don't, they can't make it over because they're not used to the structures and the way that they navigate. They can't see it, so they're running into it. And it is really affecting these bird populations, and it is directly impeding their own migration. So again, she's using this idea of bird migration as a metaphor for human migration and how these fences, again, are, um, they're obstructing it in a way that becomes, um, again, more of a symptom of a sickness that doesn't really change the fact that people and these birds and animals are migrating for bigger reasons. It's a beautiful work because she's made 
these different bars of darker textiles that are that look like the solid structure of the border fence. And then she's got these beautiful bright red bird motifs that she, I think, pins and sews to the fence. And it's also hopeful because I think, you know, these, I hope these birds will be here long after the fence is gone. (laughs) And hopefully humans do. And birds. People have always been moving. And I think a lot of these contemporary structures, what's, what these works are trying to say is that they're the temporary part and migration is going to happen. Migration needs to happen regardless of these structures. Underwood also spoke about the internal drive for her work in her 2011 oral history, as well as the need to keep some things sacred for herself and her community. When I get that feeling, I said, okay, it's enough because keep it sacred. Don't bring these sacred things. Like in Yakinan, I can come back from Yakinan, and I've seen people go to other cultures and bring back a suggestion of that culture and put it in their installation or whatever, and I'm going, that's what we called in the 90s, or no, in the 80s. It wasn't copying. All of a sudden it wasn't copying. It was appropriation. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going, I don't want to appropriate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so... Keeping something sacred, and I think art to an extent is sacred, Mm -hmm. because I know these gifts are coming from another place, and I respect that place as sacred, Mm -hmm. and it's very metaphysical, Mm -hmm. and they don't come from dreams, because dreams, I tried that before as a graduate school, reproducing something I saw in a dream, it doesn't work in reality. Mm -hmm. The dream world is to inspire me and guide me in this world but not to tell me what to do, but to guide me. Mm-hmm. And so the ideas come from beyond the dream world. It's where the dreams come from. And I feel like I've spent my whole lifetime, ever since a kid, opening up those channels because I couldn't get into this world, but I could certainly get into the other world. And I think since I spent this whole lifetime getting into those channels or getting into that world, that the channels are wide open and I have to work at shutting them off. Craft history is implicated in realms far beyond art museums, and Mary Savig framed Underwood's work as a hitch for many traditions. I think she says that really beautifully a lot in her own interview, how she says, I'm a woman, I work in threads. And how it does give this worldview that is always beyond yourself. I think especially as someone who has Mexican and indigenous heritage, she is thinking about these matrilineal lines and how she's learning these traditions and how she is just one conduit and that she is um, also going to become an ancestor someday. And so it's this really, I think, important worldview that she's sharing with us through her threads that extends beyond the present moment and into the past and the future. And of course, threads always offer a wonderful metaphor for that as a through line. What I, what I love about her work, too, and why it's so important to um, contextualize it in craft histories and legacies is because it shows its work. And I think that's a really important part of it is that even with her exposed warps and the way that she has the beams that are included with part of the display, it is about the process 
And just by looking at it, you can understand something about how she made it. And I think that way you can feel her presence and her experience and her own handwork, I think, is much more um, palpable in the work itself. That's what identifies it in this world and legacy of craft. Underwood has woven a story all her own, drawing from history, heritage, and hope. In her 2011 oral history, she expressed the depth of gratitude throughout her work. I need to make these flags. Yeah, because remember, I had to make the throughout to say thank you, heroes, mm-hmm. for giving me this job, this studio, this MFA. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then the other thank you, I guess, was in the tortillas, chiles, and other border things. Thank you, Cultura for identifying me. Thank you for allowing me to use the Morcajete, for my daughter to be using it. Thank you for my love of Chile and Nopales still. Thank you that I have the connection to the indigenous. Thank you, Cultura. And now, okay, mothers. Thank you, mothers, for taking care of me. And the Virgen de Guadalupe, I know you're the ultimate mother. And let me give you this greatest honor. I'm going to weave for you the most beautiful rebozo fabric that I can think of. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating or sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu support.